Well, it's good to see you here this morning, and it's a pleasure to be able to preach. Some of you that you may have never seen me before or heard my voice, my name is Pete Johnson. I'm an associate pastor here, and it's not that I'm the itinerant pastor coming from the lower 48, though I may sound like that. Uh, I have some dual duties, so I'm not, I'm not always in the uh, main services as much as I'd like to be. Uh, this morning, however, I'm glad that you're here, and I'm also glad that I'm here, that I have the opportunity to preach to you. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. We're going to be looking at three verses, verses 19 through 21 this morning. And the title of my sermon, as a prelude to the uh, sermon itself, is a it actually should be a quest for treasure. Now, everybody has questions about treasures, but uh, it's a quest for treasure. And uh, in regards to that, I think it's a very fitting title for what we're going to talk about this morning in the day and age in which we live. Everybody in this room uh, is now paying higher prices for things you used to pay for a while back. The supply chain is broken, and we can't get the things that we uh, once could get, or if we could get them, it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. And at this time where we live, who would not want to come into a windfall of cash or a great treasure? I mean, just be honest, I would, and I think you would probably be too. In regards to treasure, I remember as a, as a kid, I used to have this reoccurring dream. You know what they say about reoccurring dreams is that if you dream it three times in a row... It will happen. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, I think I dreamt this dream more than three times, maybe not in a row. But the dream, okay, would be involved with treasure. Because as a kid, I loved to read books about pirates and buried treasure and, and quests for treasure. And so in my dream, I would be underneath our house. Now, where I'm from, our houses were built, and they were about two, two and a half feet off the ground on cinder blocks because I lived in a place called Bayou George, Florida. It's in the Panhandle of Florida, and we didn't have the inclement weather there that we have here, so all our water lines would be exposed underneath the house, and sometimes you'd have to go under there uh, to fix water lines. And as a young boy in Bay County, Florida, where the temperature can soar, the humidity can just be miserable, I figured if the dogs went under the house during the heat of the summer, then what better place for a seven, eight-year-old to be is under the house. And I had this dream that I would be digging underneath our house. And as I, as I was digging in this rich black earth that was under our house, I was finding quarters and nickels and dimes. I mean, in just bucket loads. I would pull up handfuls of dirt, and there'd be handfuls of quarters, nickels, and dimes. Then I'd wake up, no quarters, nickels, or dimes, but then again, I used to dream that I could fly, and that never happened. Most of us in this room have probably either read a book or watched a movie having to do with a treasure hunt. I remember Treasure Island, and then they turned that into a movie, and then National Treasure, and then you've got uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and then if you really are into treasure hunting, then you've probably watched The Curse of Oak Island, Right? Yeah, somebody has. I hear them. Mike Craig has watched that. Uh, and in all these treasure hunt scenarios, to me, there seems to be four commonalities that take place. One is on a treasure hunt, whoever finds the treasure will be set for life. No worries. 
I mean, that's what you hunt after a treasure for anyway, is it not? Then the second thing, that a hunt for treasure demands total commitment. You've got to sell out. You've got to risk everything you have. The third thing that are common in treasure hunts is part-time treasure hunters probably rarely ever find the treasure. And then fourthly, in a treasure hunt, a quest for treasure, it always seems that someone dies trying to obtain it. But then you have to ask yourself, what is a treasure? What do you treasure this morning? What about those whatnots that you have on your bookshelves or maybe on your um, cabinets and things that you found on hikes, things that people have given to you, and you value those as treasure? But what really is a treasure? What, what is something that just tickles you pink to go chase after? You've all heard the saying, one man's trash is another man's treasure. So what you value, what you put value to, what you treasure, somebody else may not. Guys, you have a lot of treasures in your garage that I'm sure your wife does not consider treasure. She, maybe she's always encouraging you to get rid of those treasures. Don't listen to her. All right. But treasure. And there's, is there such things as real treasure? Of course there is. I don't know. You may not be familiar with this, but in 2010, there was a treasure, a real treasure hunt. There was a guy by the name of Forrest Finn who was a very wealthy art collector. He had been diagnosed with cancer, and he knew that his days on this earth were limited. And so he decided that he would put a treasure somewhere for people to find. And his idea was he wanted to get people out in the great outdoors and encourage people to experience nature. As far as I know, Forrest Finn was, was not a believer. And he made this public announcement. And actually, don't do it now, but after church, you could go on YouTube and you can see interviews with him and about this treasure. So he announced that the treasure is hidden somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. Somewhere between the elevation of 5,000 and 10,200 feet. And as you know, the Rocky Mountains run from the northern part of New Mexico up to Montana. That's over 3,000 miles of mountain range. So there's a treasure there, over a million dollars, if you want to search for it. The announcement of this buried treasure sent over 350,000 people scurrying and searching in the Rocky Mountains for this treasure. Now, when you think about 350,000, that's a lot of people. But I want you to think about this. Compare that number as a percentage to the amount of people in the world or even the amount of people that heard his proclamation that I've hidden a treasure. That's a minuscule amount of people, 350,000 then. Over a million dollars worth of treasure... And what Finn had done, he had taken an ancient iron bronze box that was worth a lot of money, and in it he had put gold nuggets, gold chains, Spanish doubloons, Aztec gold, all this stuff, just a treasure chest worth of treasure. There were people searching for this treasure that lost their jobs because they were searching for it intensely. 
There were people who quit their jobs so they could go spend all their full time searching for this treasure. There were people who took out loans so they could take time off work to search for the treasure with the idea, well, I'll find the treasure and pay back the loan. There were people who lost their homes, who lost their marriages, who lost their children. And there were five men who tragically lost their lives in search for this treasure. Now, 10 years later, in 2020, the search ended. There was a young medical student who had found the treasure. He was very nervous about making this public, but when he did, he found himself being sued by other treasure hunters. There were people who were saying, he stole my clue, that's the reason he found it. Or they would say, he was in, he was in cahoots with Finn. There never was a treasure. This was all a hoax. Well, he found it because Finn had written a book called The Thrill of the Chase. And in that book, there was a poem that had ten clues. If you could decipher them, would lead you to the treasure. Well, this medical student had figured out the clues in 2018, but it took him two years to find where the treasure was buried. After he found it, he was interviewed, and this was the statement he said about this quest for treasure that he went on. He said, this treasure hunt was the most frustrating experience of my life. There were a few times when I exhausted, covered in scratches and bites and sweat and pine pitch, and nearing the end of my day's water supply, sat down on a downed tree and just cried alone in the woods in sheer frustration. A couple questions I want to ask you before we get into our text this morning is what do you treasure this morning? Now, the good thing about it is you don't have to verbally express that out loud, but I want you to be serious. What do you treasure this morning? As you're sitting here listening, what do you treasure? What is that thing that you're chasing after that you spend all your time thinking about doing, thinking about finding? With those questions in mind, we're going to pray and we're going to go into our text. So let's pray, and then we'll be reading Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have your word. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that your word is truth. And you sanctify us through your word, because it is truth. I pray, Heavenly Father, this morning as we look at what you spoke a little over 2,000 years ago to a group of people who are searching for something, just like we are, just like there's people in this room that are searching for something, I pray, Father God, that the Holy Spirit would convict our hearts. Lord, help us to be honest with ourselves this morning. Lord, help us to change things if we need to change things. Help us, Lord Jesus, to change our perspective on our treasures. I was praying, Father God, too, that you would remove me, and I pray, God, you'll speak to me as well through me this morning. We ask these things in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. Jesus said this, and when you fast, excuse me, lay, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here we come to 
close to the conclusion of what we commonly refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew recorded this starting in Matthew chapter 5, and he goes into chapter 7. And this started as Jesus saw the multitude, the, the, the throngs of people that were around him. And the Bible says he went up on a mountain, probably the side of a hill there, and he began to teach as his disciples came up. This wasn't just his apostles. This were people coming up to hear him speak. And Jesus was moved with compassion as he often was to humans because our human nature is to seek out, of, out things that don't satisfy. Do whatever we can do to get ahead, no matter what. While at the same time, failing to realize the greatest treasure or the greatest treasures that lay before us. Verses 19 through 21 invokes a question through a sobering statement at the end of the verse is, where is your heart? That same question was actually asked of Adam in the Garden of Eden along with his wife Eve. You remember the story? God had given them the prohibition of don't eat this, what they would think to be treasure. The Bible says that Eve looked at that and she desired that in her heart. The more that she looked at it, the more she thought about it, the more that she wanted it. Was it valuable? Well, it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they believed the lie of the devil and they took it. Eve took it and ate it and then gave it to her husband Adam. Then now their eyes were opened. The treasure that they so desired, that earthly treasure, they got it, but it was not what they expected it to be. Automatically, it didn't satisfy. Automatically, it didn't make them feel secure. For the next few verses, we see that their eyes were open and they were naked. And that's not just physically. They were naked before God. They had been exposed. Their heart had been exposed. The Bible says that they heard the Lord God walking in the cool of the day in the garden. A voice that was familiar with them, yet they hid themselves. And we hear that God called out to the man... Adam, where are you? Now, we know that God was not asking for Adam's geographical location. God knew exactly where Adam was. God knew exactly what Adam and Eve had done. The call out to Adam was to shake him up and say, Adam, where is your heart? Where is your heart? So we see verse 19, it starts with what we call a negative Prohibition, a do not. Don't do that. And what is Jesus saying don't do? He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures. Notice it's in the plural. Treasures on earth. There are many things that classify as treasures. Some have preached that this text refers to you shouldn't have anything. You should live in a, a state of poverty. Everything you have, give, give, give. Uh, but the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that possessing material things and wealth is a sin, nor is it wicked, but it could be if the roles are reversed, because you can possess material wealth and riches, but if they possess you, now there's a problem. Genesis tells us that Abraham, Father Abraham, 
the father of the nation of Israel, was a very wealthy man. A lot of cattle, a lot of jewels, a lot of gold, a lot of silver. James tells us in James 2.23 that he also was a friend of God. We know that Job, the Bible tells us, was the richest man in the east. But yet the Bible says he was a righteous man. He was a godly man. So these two patriarchs have wealth. They have possessions. And they're not being sinful. Ecclesiastes 5, 18 through 19 is what we classify in the genre of wisdom literature. says this. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in all his toil. This is the gift of God. So it is okay to possess material wealth and material things. But also the Bible gives a stark warning to those who have material riches, earthly treasures. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter in the gates of heaven. If you remember the rich young ruler in Mark's gospel, he came to Jesus and he said, Lord, what can I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus said, sell everything that you have, give to the poor, follow me and you'll have treasures in heaven. The Bible says that that young man went away sad because he had great treasures and wealth. He could not give up his earthly treasures to gain any kind of heavenly treasure. Paul wrote to Timothy, that young preacher boy, and he said, Look, this is what you need to tell the rich people that you are pastoring. In 1 Timothy 6, 17-19, Paul wrote, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they they may take hold of that which is truly life. Well, what about then storing up? And Is it okay for me to store up for a rainy day? Is it okay for me to store up for my retirement? Is it okay for me to store up for the uh, opportunity for my children, for my wife, in case I've passed from this world unexpectedly. Yes, it is. God's Word does not teach that it's wrong or wicked to store for the future. Actually, Joseph's advice to Pharaoh in Genesis, he told him what? Store up during the seven good years so that you have enough the seven bad years. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. Remember this? Consider the ant, you sluggard. The ant has no leader, no chief, but yet she gathers her harvest in the summer so that she has Enough for the winter. In regards to taking care of your own family, Paul said this in 1 Timothy 5, 8, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, listen to this, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So it's okay to have material wealth. It's okay to have material possessions. It's okay for you to possess those things 
But you have to be very careful that they don't possess you. So what is Jesus talking about then if he's not talking about the stuff we just talked about? And how should this text this morning impact me where I'm at in the year 2022? Let's first look at the first of these two treasures, earthly treasures. Verse 19a says, Do not lay for up for yourself treasures on earth. Notice it's a plural. Like I said, there's a lot of things we could classify as treasures. So what do you think about when you think about earthly treasures? I've written a few here. And I think they'll probably be the same as what you're thinking about. Money, investments. What about your business if you have a business? Gold, silver, jewels. Houses, lands, cars, boats, planes, cabins in the woods. Am I stepping on anybody's toes yet? Um, could be ourselves. I could be the greatest treasure that I treasure. Could be my time. And unfortunately, a lot of us treasure our time because we won't give it out for the church. We won't give it out for anybody else because it's all about me. There's three things that we need to be very careful about in regards to earthly treasures. Because remember we said earthly treasures are not wrong. It's how I use them or how they use me. But three treasures I want you to think about this morning very hard. Wives, your husbands. Husbands, your wives. Mom and dad, your children. These are earthly treasures that have heavenly implications. Parents, as you live your life, depending on what treasure that you're questing after, your kids see that. They know how important the treasure you say you're hunting really is. You'd hate to stand before God one day in eternity and you're looking around, where's my kids? They went searching for the same treasure you said you were searching for because of the way possibly that you were searching for it. Husbands, God's word says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Our wives are supposed to be an ultimate treasure here on earth, an earthly treasure. How are we taking care of that treasure or are we abusing that treasure? Wives, you're to submit to your husbands in a godly way so that your children see that, so that they learn how to relate to someone else in a marriage. Because we know Paul talks about in Ephesians that marriage is symbolic to Christ in the church. You know, I don't want you to take this the wrong way. I love athletics. I love academics. I love the arts and music. But we have to be careful with this. Sometimes our children, who we say are our treasures, what happens is instead of taking them to God's house, instead of taking them to God's word, and instead of leading them to the ultimate treasure, which is Jesus Christ, we, we lead them to the basketball court. We lead them to the soccer field we lead them to the music room and then those treasures that we say they are actually we're making them into our trophies so we can say look what my kid did look what my kid has done and then they may even become your idols my kid does no wrong both of those things looking at the treasure of children the Bible says that children are a gift of the Lord and happy is the man whose quiver is full of them. It's a treasure. We need to be mindful how we treat some of our heavenly treasures. But as enjoyable, as precious, and how 
useful earthly treasures are, you can't take any of them with you when you leave this world. It's impossible. 1 Timothy 6, 7 says, For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Job one twenty one said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord had taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You can't take it with you when you go, but people try really hard. Ancient cultures, if you study ancient history, wealthy people, people of royalty, when they died, either in their tombs or their graves, would just be loaded with earthly treasures for them to use in the afterlife. Gold, silver, boats, sometimes their favorite pet. And if you were unfortunate, sometimes you, if you were one of their servants. I recently came across a story, it's a little humorous, about a guy who was very wealthy. I mean, extremely wealthy. Nobody in this room knows anybody this wealthy. And he was a churchgoer. He was dying. He found that he had cancer. And so he called in his lawyer. So I just want to apologize before I finish the story for any lawyers in here. All right? So he called in his lawyer. He called in his doctor. And he called in his preacher. And as he's laying in the bed, he looks at his preacher and he said, Pastor, I know that, that you preached... And you have preached that material wealth, worldly treasures, earthly treasures, you can't take with you when you go. But I'm a hard man, and I'm going to try to take them with me when I go. The pastor shook his head. He said, but this is what I want you to do. The request of a dying man, I have three envelopes. And he gave an envelope to each one of these gentlemen, to the lawyer, the doctor, and the pastor. Each one of those envelopes had $30,000 in it. He said, look, this is what I want you to do. When they go to lay me in the grave before the first clot of dirt hits my coffin, I want you guys to throw those envelopes in there for me. Hard thing for the pastor. Dr. Larvey said, okay, we'll do that. So they had the memorial service, and they drove together, the three of them, to the graveside. When they got there, they went through the ceremony, and before the first shovel load of dirt went on the coffin, they all three threw in their envelopes. They got back in the car. They started driving back to the church. The pastor was visibly upset. He was wringing his hands. He was rocking back and forth. And he goes, guys, I have a confession to make. He said, this is killing me. This is eating me up. He said, look, I kept out $10,000. I only put $20,000 in there because the sanctuary, the auditorium needed to be remodeled. And so that's what I used that money for. Got quiet. No one else said anything. And a little bit down the road... The doctor now is visibly upset. He goes, okay, okay, I've got got to get this off my chest. He goes, i got to confess too. He said, guys, look, um, I kept back $20,000 because I just built this clinic for the needy, for the homeless, for those people without insurance, and I needed that $20,000 to finish this project. The lawyer, which was sitting in the front seat in the passenger side, had his arms crossed, and he was just looking at these two guys with disgust. The preacher and the doctor said, You guys just disgust me. He said, look, I wrote a check for the whole amount and threw it in. (laughs) Some of you get that later on. So the moral of the story is that what you have now, what you possess now, is not going to be yours when you die. You can't take it with you. And somebody else is going to possess it. Your earthly treasures one day will do you no good. 
The second part of verse 19 emphasizes the reason why we should not store up earthly treasures. Look what it says here. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Why? Jesus didn't say, don't lay up for yourself treasures because it's wicked, vile, and ungodly. He says, because they're temporal. They're not going to last. In this statement, he doesn't condemn the possession, but he makes clear to us the temporalness of earthly treasures. And he does this, and he warns us how temporary these things are by giving three examples common to them back then, common to us today. The three examples he gives is moth, rust, and thieves. So let's look at this. Instead of Jesus saying, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth because they're wicked, vile, undone. He says, don't lay up treasures on earth for yourselves because of this. One's the moth. Moths, if you know this, if you open up a box that has linen or leather or some sort of animal skin in it and moths start flying out, it's too late. Because it's not the moth that does the damage. It's the larvae. The larvae is less than a half inch long. And they can do extraordinary damage okay, to garments. Back during this day, garments were very, very, very highly prized as a status symbol, as an investment. And if you remember okay, uh, the story of Achan. Remember in Joshua? Achan, he came in and he found some things and he kept them. What was the first thing that he found? It was a garment. That's how valuable garments were back then. It was used as an investment. It was used as security. It was used as a status symbol. Achan, in his own testimony, said this. He said, When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. The first thing he saw was a cloak. That was what caught his attention right off the bat. Moths. Okay, Jesus is not telling these people... Hey, look, the best way to preserve something is wrap it in a sandwich bag, put cheesecloth around it. Okay, This is not about how can you preserve things and make them last. This is actually Jesus saying, hey, wake up, wake up, because the things that you're dying for don't last. The things that you put all your hope and your trust in don't last. The next thing that he uses as an example is rust. And it's, it's really um, interesting that the word that's used here in the Greek is the word brosis. And the word brosis in the Greek is only... Translated into the English word rust here in Matthew. Any other time that it's translated, it's translated in the idea of you eat or meal. So it's very interesting. I started saying, well, why is it translated as rust? Well, think about rust. Rust is very small like a moth. can do great damage. Right? There's rust that goes unseen under bridges that make bridges collapse. Rust does stuff to metal, especially if it's around salt, that destroys it. You don't even know it, and it collapses. And the word destroy carries the idea of something just vanishing and being gone. And then he uses the imagery of a thief. Back during this time, people's houses were made of dried brick, mud walls, and you could just dig through the wall of a house. So the place that they thought were, was very secure... Is really unsecure. I also find it interesting that Jesus used the example of the thief. 
In John 10.10, Jesus said this about Satan. He said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So what is Jesus implying using these three common examples having to do with earthly treasures? The emphasis on the weakness of earthly treasures to satisfy. These earthly treasures, these things that we put so much time and effort into, one day will be gone. And basically, the idea of the moth and the rust and the thief is what you have right now is going to be a meal for something or someone else later down the road. It won't even belong to you. And we know that earthly treasures, because of their location here on earth, are subject to the fallen nature of this world, the moth, the rust. Earthly treasures are not even safe from Satan himself. Satan influences men to desire and act in sinful ways, become thieves and murderers themselves. So with the reality of what happens to your earthly treasure, where can anything be safeguarded? Where can any treasure be safe from sin? Jesus gives us that answer in verse 20 by contrasting earthly treasures and how vulnerable they are to loss to heavenly treasures, how secure they are, and they won't be lost. Look in verse 20. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Plural again. Here it is. Where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. The the idea where there is no sin, no fallen world will enter there. There will be no sin in heaven. It will be the place that... You all want to be. Jesus makes this statement. He says, lay up for yourselves. But you're not careful. It can imply, well, that means, does that mean I have to do really a bunch of good works and pious acts to, to get these treasures in heaven uh, or even the merit heaven itself? Is Jesus saying in secret code about safety deposit box somewhere in heaven where you could put actual gold and extra grace in case you need it? No. These heavenly treasures, what the Bible teaches, will be given to believers who faithfully serve the Lord and receive them in heaven. Is what we refer to the crowns that we'll get as faithful believers. But in regards to that heavenly treasure, the Bible says that when we get there, when we get those rewards from Jesus Christ, that we will lay them down at the feet of Jesus. You know, the best reward actually that a believer could get when you walk into the gates of heaven is Jesus Christ himself saying, Well done. My good and faithful servant. So heavenly treasures, what are these things? What are these crowns that I just mentioned? Well, here's some examples of these treasures of heaven and how you can yourself store those up. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul, who's nearing the end of his life, is writing to Timothy. And Paul is saying, look... Keep preaching the word, just like I've been doing. And there's going to become a day when people are not going to want to hear the truth. They're going to want people to preach to them to make them feel good about themselves. He said, but keep preaching. And guess what? As you preach the gospel, as you share the gospel, you're going to be persecuted. People are not going to like you. You probably may even be killed for preaching the truth. 
Paul said, I have been doing that. And in verse 8, he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also who have loved his appearing. If you love his appearing, you're going to love to share the gospel with other people so that they can rejoice and love his appearing. Serving, ministering to the needy. Matthew 6, 1 through 4 says this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. This is having to do, what are you doing with your heavenly treasures? What's the motive behind your heart? Why are you doing the things that you're doing? For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret secret will reward you. Jesus taught that acts of kindness as small as giving a cold cup of water in His name will not go without a heavenly reward. Also suffering persecution. Believers who are faithful to the end will receive a crown of life, the Bible tells us. So these are the heavenly treasures that are reserved for those people who are truly born again, who are faithful believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you get these treasures not just because you do the good work, but it's the heart motivation behind that. Because you've got to understand that the mere act of doing good works does not equal salvation. Neither is the gospel just an act of doing good to somebody. You can do good all you want. You can do good to other people all you want. That is not salvation. Those things can help out in proclaiming the gospel, but it's not the gospel. You can work all you want for heavenly treasures. You can fall very, very short. Many people today in the church believe that they're on the quest for heavenly treasure. They've dedicated themselves to these acts, these pious works. But yet we read in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, this is Jesus' words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. To receive any kind of heavenly reward, you've got to be in possession of the ultimate heavenly treasure. And what is that? That's Jesus Christ. That's God himself, the author and finisher of salvation. For salvation through Jesus Christ is the ultimate heavenly treasure. But it has nothing to do with what you do how hard you chase after it, all the good things that you can do. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, a treasure from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 3 through 9, and what's really exciting as you read through this, uh, been meeting with a couple, going through a Bible study in Romans 
And it's really interesting as we're going through that. As you go through Romans, you're going back to Genesis. And, uh, and she said, this is blowing my mind. This is so amazing because everything that here ties back to there seems like it's all one book. It is all one book. And what's really interesting here, there was two guys we know for a fact that were on that hillside with Jesus on that day that have written to us in God's Word. That's Peter and John. And they both have something to say in regards to what Jesus spoke on that day. The heavenly treasure that we should be striving for, questing for, through the work of Jesus Christ on our own, is Jesus Christ himself. It's salvation of your soul. In regards to that, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. You cannot lose your salvation. If you truly have salvation, you cannot lose it. And Peter explains why. 1 Peter 3, 1, 3 through 9 says that our salvation is an inheritance. It's a heavenly treasure that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you by God's power. It's not susceptible to moth, not susceptible to rust. Thieves cannot break through and steal. Your faith in Christ Jesus, if it's genuine, is more precious than gold. But now how can you know today that you're on the right quest? Matthew chapter 7 is a stark reminder that there's a lot of people thinking that they're on the right quest, but they're going to die and go to hell. Well, the answer can be found in verse 21. Jesus says this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What are you chasing after? What is your main priority is where your heart's at. A wooden translation of this Greek text. And what I mean by wooden translation, if you just take the word and you just go, okay, Greek to English. To me, it's very impactful. I mean, it says the same thing that it says in your English Bible. To me, the way it's worded is more impactful. And I want to share that with you. So a wooden translation says this. Wherefore is the treasure of you, there will be also the heart of you. Let me read that again, that wooden translation. Wherefore is the treasure of you, there will be also the heart of you. Your heart is tethered to whatever treasure that you hold valuable. Verse 21 is the key to unlocking this whole passage. Actually, it's the key to unlocking the whole Sermon on the Mount. It's about our heart. It's not the heart that's pumping blood in your chest right now. When the Bible refers to the heart, it's referring to the the seat of emotion, the seat of motivation, the seat of desire. What motivates you to do the things you do? What is it that's in your heart that motivates you to treat other people the way that you treat them? What is it in your heart that motivates you to chase after the things that you're chasing after? Why are you treasuring up the things that you're treasuring up right now. If my heart is focused on myself, I'm going to treasure myself and the things that are self-serving. As we close, I want to take you back to the beginning of the message in regards to the four things that are common in, in, in all treasure hunts. The first one I said, for earthly treasure hunt, the promise of whoever finds it will be set for life. The Bible tells us whoever has Christ as their 
heavenly treasure is securely set for all eternity. Romans 8, 38-39 says this, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Second, the quest for heavenly treasure demands total commitment. You've got to be sold out. You've got to risk everything you have. Jesus said that same thing in regards to the Christian life in Luke chapter 9. And if your heart's there, it will soar toward living for Christ. He said, and he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The third thing was, as we know, part-time treasure hunters rarely ever find the treasure. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And fourthly, in those treasure hunts, those quests for treasure, somebody always dies. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ died for you and died for me because it was a treasure we could not obtain. It was a treasure we couldn't find without what Christ did for us. The greatest heavenly treasure. Romans 5, 6 to 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you're a believer this morning, you're, even while you were searching for heavenly treasure and going after that, Christ had already died for you so you could obtain the greatest heavenly treasure. I'd like for you to go to Luke chapter 6. This is not originally in my notes, but I feel impressed to read this. In Luke chapter 6, I think this coincides really well with what Jesus was talking about on the mount that day. Starting with verse 45. Luke chapter 6, verse 45. It says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks Here's the kicker right here. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not, and not do what I tell you? Whatever your treasure is this morning, it possesses the power to alter your heart for either good or evil. And this morning, as you think about what treasures you're chasing after, You know, a lot of things that we chase after, we can hide. The treasures of the world are what we think are treasures. We can hide, easily hide, because those tools that we use to hunt for those treasures are not external tools. They're in our heart. 
And we can hide those things from our spouse. We can hide those things from our friends. We can hide those things from people, but we can't hide any of that from God. John tells us that God knows the heart and the intent of every single one of us in this room. So he knows the tools that you have in your heart right now. He knows the treasure map that you have in your heart right now, what you're searching for, what you can't wait to get out and go to when you leave this building. It is what I possess in my heart that makes the treasure I'm laying up so valuable. If my treasure is earthly, yep, I'm going to find wealth, fame, and fortune probably, but it comes with a cost, a cost that you or I can't pay or unable to pay. I want to read again this quote from the guy who found the treasure. He says, This treasure hunt was the most frustrating experience of my life. There were a few times when I exhausted, covered in scratches and bites and sweat and pine pitch, and nearing the end of my day's water supply, I sat down on a down tree and just cried alone in the woods in sheer frustration. Are you there this morning? Are you sitting on that down tree and you are crying out in frustration because the treasure that you're searching for, the quest that you're on, is not leading you to heavenly treasure. It's leading you to discouragement, depression, despair, anxiety. Are you tired of chasing after treasures that are going to be gone? Either before you leave this world, definitely after you leave this world. John 2, 15 through 17. This would be my closing statement. I'd like you to go there because I want you to see this. 1 John, I mean 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. I think this is something we need to meditate on during this week. Because remember, John, the guy who wrote the Gospel of John, the, the guy who wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, was there on that hillside the day that Jesus spoke these words. And it impacted him so much that he writes about it right here. And see if you cannot see in this text, John, explain even further about where your heart is and what treasure are you chasing this morning. He writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Let me stop right there. John also uses grammar in this. There's, the word love that's used as a verb twice and used as a noun once. The first time it's used, it's used as a verb. He says, do not love chasing after worldly treasure or the things in the world. If anyone loves, that's an action verb. Anybody who's going after those things, here's the kicker. The love, which is a noun. A noun is a person, place, or thing. It's something you can possess. The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, all the treasures that you can find in the world, the pleasures, and he says, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, is decaying, is rotting with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever.